Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed among and along with those of Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by God, by the law. For the righteousness shall the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Brian. And uh, yeah, I, I picture things when I'm reading too. I'm a, I don't know, I'm a visual guy that way as well. And I would add to the, what you mentioned, you, you almost can kind of see him sort of wagging his finger, eh? Like, why this and who this? And he just goes on and on and on for verse after verse after verse. Um, as much as I would like to say, oh, you know, there's only ever uh, gentle kind of kind, kind of uh, careful um, prodding and encouragement in the Bible. The fact of the matter is, is sometimes uh, biblical authors just get angry. They get upset and they lay it out there in the Word. Uh, and so we shouldn't be afraid to just admit that that is the case. Um, this whole thing got started. Uh, we're in the book of uh, Galatians, by the way, for those of you who are visiting with us. We've been uh, in it for a number of weeks now. And the section that we're in right now, uh, the whole thing got started with the Apostle Paul talking, telling a story about how upset he was with a brother of his, the Apostle Peter, for his hypocrisy. He charged his his fellow apostle with hypocrisy. I don't know if you know this, but you know when you read a typical Bible and there are chapter breaks and there are verses and stuff like that, that's not how it was originally put together. It was just put together as long letters without any breaks. And so those breaks are put there by editors who are trying to help you be able to find different parts of the Bible. Uh, we don't have to say that chapter 3 is a whole new section disconnected from what's going on in chapter 2. In fact, there's a deep connection uh, between what's going on in chapter 2 with what's going on in chapter 3, and it's this. It's that Paul is explaining how in the world Christians can get out from underneath this charge of hypocrisy. We said uh, a few weeks ago that uh, non-Christians, oftentimes when you 
talk to them about Christianity and talk to them about the Bible and stuff, they say, you know, I could never be a Christian because Christians are hypocrites, meaning that Christians are people who they say one thing, but they go and do another thing. So they say, you know, they're, you know, they're very concerned about sexual purity and sexual morality and stuff like that, but they're sleeping around just like everybody else. And so what they say and what they do don't line up. And if that's what this religion is all about, I really frankly don't want anything to do with it. And we had to, we had to admit that uh, there's some truth to that, that Christians can be charged with that rightfully, and uh, they need to address that, and they need to be honest about that, and they need to deal with that. And the way that the Apostle Paul says it, it's supposed to be dealt with is by going back to the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is this. Jesus does not love you because you're good. He does not love you because you're beautiful. He does not love you because you're lovely. In fact, Jesus, the gospel is, is that Jesus loves you despite the reality that you are not good that you are not beautiful, that you are not lovely. And any attempts by you or me to try to make God like us more by doing good things is going to be an absolute failure. We are justified, this is the, the fancy word, the theological word for it, we are justified by faith, meaning that God looks at us and He, he doesn't condemn us, but rather He welcomes and accepts us through faith in Jesus Christ, rather than based upon how well we keep His commandments. That's the gospel. And Paul says that once, you, once that sinks into you, once you really believe that deep in your soul, you simply cannot be a hypocrite. You can't. Now, that was the first half, kind of, of his argument today comes the second three. Let me say right away, right at the beginning, I have, to, I have to start with an apology because this is a very dense passage. It, maybe while we read it, you found it complicated and hard to understand what in the world Paul was getting at, and it, it is kind of that way. And we could probably spend a number of weeks working through just this one section. You only get one message on it. Sorry. That's just how it is. We're, we're going we're gonna to fly over so fly over this whole thing, so to speak. But the second half of the argument that Paul is going to make in this passage is this. This gospel is not just the way that you become, the way that you're made right with God. It's actually also the way that you grow as a Christian. It's the way you develop as a believer. Another fancy word we talk about in Christian circles is the word sanctification. How do you actually become more like Jesus Christ? And by the way, interestingly enough, in my uh, discussions with non-Christians, some of you know that I'm, I have regular discussions with non-Christians, I talk to them about what they believe, what they think, what they think about spiritual things. When I talk to them about Jesus and I ask them, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Of course, they don't say, well, he's the son of God who died for my sins, because that would make them a Christian, and they're not. But almost to a man, meaning almost every single one of them will say this, Jesus was a great man. He was an incredible moral teacher. He was an incredibly moral person. He was a, an amazing example to all of us 
of what a person should be like. And I would like to be like him. Here's the problem. Many of us are not like him. How do you grow in becoming like Jesus? How do you become more humble? How do you become more forgiving? How do you become a more joyful person? How do you become a more compassionate person? How does, how does this stuff develop in us? How do you, to put it this way, let me put it this way, how do you advance, so to speak, in Christianity, where you're not just, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, and that's all good, but I'm still completely and utterly screwed up. I still uh, hate my parents, and I can't forgive them for the things they've done to me. I'm still caught up in all kinds of addictions, and I can't seem to get free of it. I'm still incredibly greedy, and I can't get, get over the fact that I just want to, to, to build a successful business so that people think I'm awesome. I'm still a bit of a gossip, and I, I just can't help by putting others down uh, uh, to make myself feel good. How do you get past that? Face it. Our first introduction to Jesus came from us seeing a big problem in our lives. There's something wrong with me. And we saw that Jesus maybe was able to do something about that. And then we, as we encountered him, we realized, oh, the problem is primarily sin and God's anger on sin and my, I need to be accepted by God and so I trust in him and I believe in him. But once we get, once we're in... Now what? We want to advance. We want to grow. We want to deal with that problem that is inside us. And what Paul says in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, is this. He says, listen, the gospel is not only the way you become a Christian, it's actually the way you grow as a Christian too. The same thing applies. The same thing is at work. Many people, this is where they get, this is where they get, how do I put it? This is where they, they get tripped up, so to speak, when it comes to Christianity. Many people think that, that yes, they are, their relationship with God is fixed by believing in Jesus. And now that they're a Christian and a follower of Jesus, now what they got to do is they got to apply their willpower really, really hard to the problems in their lives in order to overcome them to be like Jesus. Do you see? So Jesus gets me into a relationship with God, and now I'm the one who kind of picks up the torch and moves forward to, to advance my relationship with God. And what we're going to see, actually, is that that is a deadly thing. That is a deadly way to try to become more like Jesus, to try to deal with the problems deep inside us. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at four things, three things. Uh, you can see a little outline on the back of your... Uh, your bulletin, if you want to follow along, uh, just as a reference point to where we are. The first thing we're going to look at is the way that we grow in our faith. The second thing we're going to look at is the deadly alternative, and then we're going to look at uh, the solution to the problem. Here we go. First of all, the way that we become like Jesus. How do you grow? Verse 1, Paul says this, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now stop right there because this is very interesting. He's talking to these people who live in these churches up in, the, in, in what's now Turkey. And he says, Jesus Christ was crucified before your very eyes. That's not true. <laughs> At the crucifixion of Jesus. What is he talking about? Is he saying that, that they literally saw it? No, he's not. 
In verse 2, he goes on and he says, did you receive the Spirit, or sorry, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, when you heard the message that Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died, he says, that is how you saw Jesus crucified. See, up in verse 1 where it says, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, actually the word really emphasizes this idea of graphic. He was graphically or vividly crucified to you. In other words, what Paul is saying is that when, you, when I came to you and I told you this story of how the Son of God came into this world and He showed us God's love and He pointed us to our salvation and then He lived and died for us, when, when He did this, when I came and I taught this to you, the eyes, not of your head, but the eyes of your heart were opened. And you saw how incredibly beautiful and how incredibly freeing that message actually is. You, you experience it. In other words, you were, you were smitten by the beauty of Christ. In other words, the way you came to faith, he says, is that you didn't just know stuff in your head about who Jesus is. You felt stuff in, in the core of your being about how wonderful Jesus actually is. He became beautiful to you. And, and maybe some of you are wondering, you know, you come here and uh, you see people singing uh, the songs, and some of them, like, they have their eyes closed, and they're like, whoa, going like that. Some people are raising their hands. Some people tear up in parts, and they can't even finish the words. And frankly, you look around, and you go, what is up with that? This is what's up with that. There are people who have been, who have been hit by the incredible truth that their Lord Jesus Christ was willing to die in their place. And it's become real to them. So that's what Paul said happened to you, okay? But now there's a problem. He goes on in verse 3 and he says this, Are you so foolish, having begun by the flesh? So what he says this is that, look, the Spirit, by faith you became a Christian, and the Spirit enabled you to do that. But now, you're going back to keeping the law in order to advance in your Christian life. You started one way, and now you want to kind of finish another way. And he says, that's foolish, that's stupid, frankly. Why would you do that? Listen to verse 4 and 5. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And you're hearing that, and maybe you're going, man, I don't, I don't, I don't get what he's saying. What is he saying there? There's a, a translation of the Bible. It's a paraphrase of the Bible called the message, and I, I use it sometimes. I refer to it sometimes because it puts in very plain language what the Bible is saying, uh, and it is a paraphrase, so it's very interpretive, but... What he says here, what the guy who, who wrote the message says here, I think is really helpful. So listen to how he puts it. He says, this is verses 5 and 6. Answer me this question. Does the God who lavishly provides you with his own presence, his Holy Spirit, 
working things in your lives you could never do for yourselves. That's the, the miracles that's in, in the Bible translation. Working things in your lives that you could never do yourselves. That's what the miracle is. Like, make you believe in Jesus. That's the big one, okay? If, if you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, I get it. There's lots of reasons not to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to live in this world and die for your sin and was resurrected and ascended to the Father. I know that there's lots of reasons you don't believe. People who do, and if you look at people who are Christians and you think, I don't know, how, how did they get there? The answer is this, it was a miracle. The miracle of faith. So, keeping going, he does these things who could never do for yourself. Does he do these things because of your strenuous moral striving or because you trust him to do them in you? He's saying, how did God do all these amazing things in you? Did he do it by you trying really, really hard to keep the law and to follow him by your willpower? No. It was by believing Believing the gospel and applying that to your lives. That's how. Now, what we need to do is we need to pause for a second and make that super duper concrete. Use Christian language for stuff that they frankly do not have a clue what it means. Okay? One of those phrases is, well, I got to apply the gospel to my life. And that sounds really good when a group of Christians are sitting around and talking and, and, and opening up about their lives, but they have no clue what they're saying. I've got to apply the gospel to my life. How do I do that? Well, let's look at an, a concrete example, okay? Because it sounds weird, frankly. To, if you're not a Christian, it sounds really weird. Apply the gospel to your life? What do you mean? Let's take pornography. Pornography is rampant in our culture, obviously, and it's a big problem in the church, just as much as it is in our culture. Maybe there's uh, men here who struggle with pornography and they say, I don't want to do it. I, I hate it when I do it, but I can't seem to break its hold over me. I can't seem to overcome it. And you tell yourself, don't do it. It's against God's law. It says in the Bible, do not look lustfully upon a woman. It says in the Bible that if you do that, you've committed adultery in your heart and you, maybe you even pray to God and you say, God, take this, this desire and this lust away from me and free me from it. And yet you still fall back into it. You still fall back into it. You, maybe you even do stuff like, like you put filters on your computers or you, you have an accountability partner who, who you talk to about your struggles all the time. Those are all very good things, by the way. But the Apostle Paul wouldn't start there with you. He would say, look, your issue of lust is coming from the fact that you are not living your life in line with the gospel. Remember, that's what he said to Peter when Peter was being a hypocrite. He says, you're not living in line with the gospel. He says, you, you, you got to see that you're looking for something. You're looking for a perfection, Okay. Remember it said in, in verse uh, 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You're looking for a completion. You're looking for a perfection. You're looking for something in that pornography that you don't have itself. And studies will tell you these are not necessarily Christian studies. These are just studies by psychologists and, and people who understand human behavior. They'll tell you that very often pornography use is not about physical lust. 
And one of the ways you can know that that's true is, is especially among Christian young men, they say, well, you know, if I was just married, I wouldn't have this problem anymore, right? Because they, well, they can't have sex before they're married, so they think if they get married, then everything will be okay. And what you discover is, is that many young men, they get married and the problem doesn't go away. So it's not just, I don't have an outlet for my physical urges. There's something more going in masculine needs for for power and for desirability. They want a sense of control. So in the pornography world, they get the sense of, of control. They create a fantasy where they are in control of a universe where every woman finds them irresistible. And I do a lot of marriage counseling. And I'll tell you, one of the deep insecurities men have is that they're wives don't think they're awesome. I mean, I'd love to go on and on about that, but just trust me. They don't think they're as great as they want their wives to think they are. Wives, why do you think your husbands are always angling for you to say something, like to compliment them? Not about how, you know, how much you love them, but, you know, how handsome they are or how smart they are, how good at their job they are. Men are ridiculously insecure. I'm a poster boy for it. And Paul says, you've got to apply the gospel to that. You've got to see you are a sinner. You've got to see that you are not the center of the universe, that God is the center of the universe, that you have a too high a view of the place that you think you ought to be in, and you need to repent. But at the same time, you also need to see that you are justified by Jesus Christ, not by how successful you are, how irresistible to women you are, or how strong you are, or how handsome you are. You are justified by Jesus Christ. You are perfected in Him. You are irresistible, in a sense, to the only one that really counts. And in that way, you actually break the back of the lust that has a control over you. You see, you got to apply the gospel to it. Should you have accountability partners? Should you have internet filtering? Should you be very careful with what you see on TV or movies, etc.? Of course. But if you only do that, you're just working on behavioral change. Paul says you got to start at the heart, from which the behavior comes from. Okay. Many of the women are like, yeah, guys, Let's, let's take another example. This one's a little more gender-inclusive, okay? Anger. A lot of people struggle with anger. A lot of people struggle with anger. They have bitterness in their heart. They have people in their lives that have hurt them very, very deeply, and they simply cannot forgive them. They can't even love them, let alone forgive them. When I say love, I don't mean feel tremendous affection for. I mean biblical love, like desire what's best for them. There's a lot of people who wrestle with this. And, and maybe they've prayed and they said, God, help me forgive this person. I know that I shouldn't be angry at them. I know, but I just can't seem to let it go. Paul would say, you need to apply the... Look, there's something, there's something that's serving as your functional savior, okay? It's not necessarily, you know, Jesus is your savior, but you're looking to this thing rather than to Jesus as your functional savior, you see? In other words, you have, to look, you have to have this thing in order for you to be okay. For, for some people, it's comfort, being comfortable. That's their real savior. And so maybe there's this person in your life that is constantly making your life uncomfortable. They're a difficult person. Whenever you've got some time to yourself or whatever, boom, they're very needy. And ding, they're on the phone. 
and you go, oh, and you, you have caller ID, and you look at it, and you just you roll your eyes when that person calls because they're really needy. Or they're, they're getting in the way of you experiencing that comfort. Maybe it's respect. Maybe it's having a sense of, of, of people respecting you, and there's someone who's standing in the way of that. They're, they're standing in the way of you getting the kind of respect you want. Maybe it's a colleague at work that takes your ideas and calls them their own. And they're getting the respect from, from other people around you that you believe that you deserve. And so they have made you mad because they've stood in the way. They've, they've been an obstacle to you having your comfort or your respect. You're having that, that idol, that God, that functional savior in your life given to you. And the Apostle Paul would say the answer to that is the gospel. You can't, tell, you can't just tell yourself, stop it. How many of you have seen, um, there's a, a, an amazing, I think it's an SNL sketch. Do you remember Bob Newhart from the Bob Newhart show? He, he plays, Bob Newhart, he plays in this SNL sketch. He plays what's called a cognitive behavioral therapist. And someone comes in and sits down and shares all their problems with Bob Newhart. And I'm not like just bashing cognitive behavioral therapy because there's a lot of it that is very, very good. But he does this, this sketch where he sits there as this counselor and he listens to the person sharing their problems and stuff like that. And he goes, okay, so here's my advice. Stop it! Stop it! Why do you keep doing that? Just stop it! And he just says it over and over and over and over again. Friends, you can't just tell yourself to stop it. When you can't forgive, you need to go back to the gospel and you got to say, look, yeah, this person hurt me deeply. Yeah, this person has been an obstacle to my advancement in my career or an advancement to, or, or my comfort or whatever, but, but the judgment that they deserve from me is nothing in comparison to the judgment that I deserve from God for all the ways that I have slapped him in the face and refused to follow his will. And yet, he forgives me. Yet, he is patient with me. Yet, he holds on to me. You've got to repent, you see? And you've got to be able to forgive. You've got to look at the gospel and you've got to see Jesus Christ who while he is on the cross and people are spitting at him and mocking him and laughing at him, he looks to heaven and he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He forgives you anyway. How can you hold it back from other people? Now, maybe you say, well, they've wronged me, though. Deeply. They have hurt me incredibly deeply. And maybe that's true. For some of you, you have been hurt incredibly deeply. And maybe you're listening to this and you're going, oh, that's, that's so easy for you to say, preacher man. And I admit, it is well, easy. I mean, I had to think a lot about it before I said it, but... It is easy for me to say, in a sense. But listen, only what is in you can come out of you. Only what is in you can come out of you. This is something that I learned maybe 15, 20, 15 years ago, and it has not changed my life as much as it should, but it has changed my life, and my wife's too. I, I took a course with a guy, a very brilliant uh, psychologist, who took a bottle of water, and I, you'd think I would have had a bottle of water here today, but I couldn't find one. <laughs> uh, and he, he stood up in front of the class, and he said, 
he shook the bottle of water, and there was no cap on it, and water went flying out, and it fell on the floor. And then he asked the class, he goes, well, why did water come out of it? And we all went, because you shook it. And he went, yeah. Now listen carefully to the question, why did water come out of it? And then we all just, you know, a bunch of dumb seminary students, uh, uh, I don't get it. He says, water came out of it because water was in it. You see, when, when, we, when we fly off the handle or when we uh, go after pornography or when we gossip or whatever, it's because, yes, people may be shaking us. People may be giving us a hard time. People may be irritating us to the nth degree. But the reason we explode or the reason we run after pornography or the reason we get involved in gossip is because what's in us? You can only get out of us what's in us. And so, you can only deal, you can only deal, really, with what's inside of you. And Paul is saying, you can't white-knuckle your way through it. You've got to deal with it through the gospel, because the gospel can actually change what's inside of you, so that when you're shaken, something else comes out. All right, that's the first point, and by far the longest What's the alternative and why is it deadly? Verse 10, Paul says in verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul says the alternative is law. Now, he is referring, of course, to the Old Testament law described in Deuteronomy, okay? Uh, But your law can be anything. It can be money, it can be morality, it could be your looks, it could be your athleticism, it could be your big brain, it can be all kinds of things. And what Paul does in this section is, is he shows that if you, if you try to live by law, you will die. That's the whole point of it. And the reason is, right there where it says in uh, verses 11 and following, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. What Paul is saying is, is if you're going to submit to a law, if you're going to say, by relying on the law, I'm going to be okay, or I'm going to be made acceptable, then you've got to live by it. You've got to keep the whole thing. Now, it's understandable a lot of people go, what's all this law stuff? What's, what, why? I don't submit to the law. And I don't get why if you break the law, there's a curse. This is why. Law, all law is what you call covenantal or relational. If you obey a law, you get intimacy in terms of a relationship with another person. If you break a law, you get banished. You get cut off. Because all law, essentially, wherever it comes from, is an expression of desire, of what matters to you. And you probably don't know this, but the truth is, is that law exists at the heart of all your relationships. You maybe not think about your relationships that way, but that's exactly what's going on. Here's here's an example, okay? Here's a man, here's a woman, they meet one another, they're 
at a mixer or something, they talk a little bit, they start getting along, they feel a vibe, kind of an attraction, you think, hey, this is pretty good, this is a good relationship, we should go out sometime, and say, okay, let's go out sometime, and they go out, and they have a really good time, and they say, well, we should see each other again, and, and they see each other again, and they go to a coffee shop, and uh, the, the woman says to the man, look, there's a few things you need to know about me before we get going, like, things seem to be moving pretty well, and I like the way, the, the direction we're headed, but you need to know a few things about me. First of all, you need to know, I cannot stand smoke. Cigarette smoke, I can't handle it. And he says, oh, well, that's too bad because, you know, I, th- I smoke three packs a day. I smoke when I get up. I smoke before I go to bed. I smoke in the middle of the night. I smoke inside. I smoke outside. I love it. And she goes, hmm, okay. Well, let, let me try this one. She says, I want you to understand something. Um, both of us have really good jobs, we make good money, etc., but for me, generosity is extremely important. I want to live a simple life, and I want to be able to give money away and help others and service and that kind of stuff. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. He says, I- I've got plans, Freedom 55, baby. I want to have, you know, a summer home, I want to have a boat in the dock. I have big plans for that kind of thing. I, I-, I don't want to give all my money away. I want to enjoy life, the fruits of my labor. She says, oh. Okay. And then she says one more thing. She says, well, you know, for me, service is extremely important. Serving others, helping the poor. In fact, I would love to be able to live in a less affluent neighborhood, in a lower income neighborhood, so I can, I can be a source of stability for the people around me and a source of blessing for the people around me. And he says, oh, no, 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 you can't trust those people. Gated community. That's where it's at. Well, what's going to happen? You think he's going to say, okay, great, good talk, glad we worked that out. Now, let's get down to business. Will you marry me? And she's going to say, not on your life. Why not? Because at the heart of all relationships is law. See, when you love someone, and if you've been in love, you know this, you cannot, cannot, cannot live any old way you want. You've got to learn what the passions and convictions are of that other person, and you have to honor that. You have to submit yourself to that. You can't just go and trample on them and expect to maintain a a relationship. If you trample on them, you'll be cut off. And maybe you say, well, yeah, there's more fish in the sea. You find someone that's more compatible with you. And maybe that's true on a human level, but you see the scriptures teach that that doesn't work on a divine level because we were built for God. Listen to verse 12. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. What verse 12 is saying is, is unless you live entirely by God's law, obeying every single part, you will be cursed. You will be cut off. And Scripture's universal teaching is this, that when you're cut off from God, you die. You die. You spiritually wilt and die, and eventually you will even physically wilt and die because you cannot live without him. But we can't have him if we're just going to submit to the law because we can't keep it. That's the conundrum. That's the problem. And that's why we need a solution. Last point. How do we overcome this deadly alternative? How is that done? Well, it's by the cross, right? 
Look at verse 13. It explains how the cross does this. Verse 13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, first understand something. Paul is not saying that because Jesus died on a cross, a tree, okay, he was cursed. That's not what the Old Testament actually teaches. The Old Testament actually teaches that cursed people are hung on trees. So if someone was cursed, they would be stoned to death, and then they would be hung on a tree as symbolism of the fact that they are cursed. And so Jesus, because he was cursed, because he became a curse, it says, Jesus Christ was hung on a tree. It doesn't just say he was cursed, it says he became a curse. What that means is, is that Jesus Christ was treated as, the, as a lawbreaker. He was treated by God as Peter the denier, okay? He was treated as Judas the betrayer. He was treated as David the murderer slash adulterer. He was treated as the porn addict. He was treated as the bitter spouse. He was treated as the abusive parent. He was treated as those people by the father. And he was cursed. He was cut off from his father. He lost his relationship with his father. Now, anybody here who has known rejection, relational rejection, you know how much that hurts. To want to be in relationship with someone and for them to say, no, you may not have it. It's a deep, deep wound. There are few things. There's maybe nothing that hurts as much as that. To feel betrayed, so to speak. And this is worse. What Jesus experienced is worse than anything you or I has ever experienced because Jesus says in the Gospel of John, He says, the Father and I are one. The depth of intimacy of His relationship with His Father far outstrips anything you and I could ever know in this life. Far outstrips it infinitely. He's existed before the creation of the world for all eternity in this Trinitarian, mutually loving, mutually uh, glorifying relationship where they loved and cherished one another. And when Jesus needed his father, when he ran to him for strength in the midst of trial, when he was hanging on the cross and he was about to to face the wrath, uh, the depths of hell itself, he cried out. He turned to his father and he said, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he heard nothing in return because he had been banished. And Paul says here he did that, verse 14, so that in Christ the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And that blessing of Abraham, he explains in verse 6, righteousness. It was credited, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. He had acceptance. He was brought into the relationship with the Father. And we get that too. You see, you're treated as a law keeper, not as a law breaker. And the way that grows you, and, and that that grows you because, you see, if God just said, look, if God just said to you, I forgive your sins, I absolve you, washed away, that puts you in a neutral position, right? That takes you from negative 
to neutral. But that does not put you in a positive position yet. Now you still have this law that you're supposed to keep in order to maintain the relationship. And you know you won't last very long in that, right? And if that's how it worked, then you would always be worried. You would always be on edge. But now you don't have to worry because Jesus gave you, he took your bads, he gave you his goods. So now, now you look at the law, you say, well, you know, there's the Ten Commandments and you know, I'm supposed to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me and I'm supposed to care for the poor. I'm supposed to be really generous with my money. All those things, those duties, they're not duties anymore. They're delights. Because when you love somebody, you want to please them, right? You look for ways to make them smile, not to get anything from them, just because you want to see them smile, just you want to see their joy, And when it comes to your relationship with God, you're becoming the person that God sees you as already. That's why we have these words on the very front of the bulletin. I encourage you to read both uh, quotes at at some time, but I love that second one. It's from a hymn by William Cowper. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's pray. Father, help us to continually fix our eyes on Jesus, on what he has done, even when it comes to dealing with the things inside us that we hate, our anger and our short temper, our bitterness, our lust, our greed, our, all the stuff that gets us into trouble so often. When we see that in us and we hate that in us, help us not to just say stop it, but help us to go back to the cross of Jesus and see how he has killed that tendency, how you don't see that tendency in us anymore so that we can have power, power through the Holy Spirit to make change so that the world won't see hypocrites. The world will see people really trying not not to get something from you, but because we've got everything from you, trying to live as you see us. In Jesus we pray, amen.